page 74, maybe stick a finger in that. Or, or perhaps stick a finger in page 232. So I'll read Exodus first. And then I'm going to read a bit from Judges 2. And we're going to look at one or two other passages in Scripture. Just while you're doing that, as Lydia says, we're in a series looking at the Ten Commandments. I, I think, what, do I, what am I hoping we get out of this? If, if anything else, or if nothing else we get out of this, it is that we, we break the kind of image or myth of, of, a, of a kind of angry God with a great big beard. I, I think Cecil B. DeMille's film, The Ten Commandments, from Moses, you know, it's austere, there's sort of thunder and lightning, and there's a kind of finger-wagging God, and he kind of, you know, thou shalt not. It's always, for some reason, The Ten Commandments, and we always go into Old English, don't we? Thou shalt not, and it's just a, sort of this image of Christianity is no, no, no. <laughs> and I, I, my heart, as, I, as I've engaged with scriptures, thought about the, the, the ten, literally in Hebrew, the ten words. And if we were to just extend that, it's actually they're kind of covenant stipulations. These are the ten words of life. God is saying, in the Ten Commandments, we'll read in just a moment, he is saying, when you come into relationship with me, you will want to sing, as we've just sung, we spent about five minutes through two songs, singing, God, you are good. God, you are good. You are so good. And God says, yes. And, and in order for you to live out the goodness that you've come into relationship with, my goodness in you, I'm going I'm to offer you these ten words of life. They're like bread. They're like food. They're like water. Eat these, drink these, and you will live and live well. That, the, the current phrase is living your best life. Well, you will live the best life here on earth as you and we journey towards heaven. So they're ten words of life. Not so much, you shall not, as why would I want to? Because I want to live for you. Here's what uh, God says to the people through Moses uh, in the book of Exodus. Chapter 20, verse 1. I'm just going to read the first four verses. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And it's just... Uh, I'll come on to this a little bit later on, but page 232, Judges 2. This is kind of a, a history of God's people after the Exodus. Just, uh, Joshua is their leader. And uh, uh, we read, we'll pick it up, verse 8 of chapter 2, towards the end of his life. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnar Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, whole generation of me gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who'd brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. 
And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. A nation called by God into relationship with God, a nation that I dare say in their own time, in their own language, said, oh God, you are so good. And here we, we read in Judges just a, a few generations on, they are powerless, they are in distress. I, I wonder to what extent we might say this describes our individual lives from time to time and the life of the church. Relatively powerless, in distress. Could it be that we have strayed from what lies behind the heart of this second commandment, this second word of life? Don't fashion an idol. Don't create a God, small g. Don't do anything other than Follow the first commandment. You'll have no other God before me. Worship me. Satisfy yourself in me. And you will know how good life is. You will know blessing and contentment this world and the next. You shall have no idols. The writer of the Ecclesiastes says, God has set eternity in the heart of man. St. Augustine put it like this in a famous prayer, almost sort of cliched in Christian circles, but he said, uh, by way of a prayer, you, God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts will find no rest, no, no peace, until they find their rest in you. We're made for God, eternity in the heart of man, longing in the heart of man and woman, mankind, to, to connect with God, to know God and be known by him. Uh, Christopher West, contemporary Catholic theologian, uh, he talks of it in terms of a universal longing. He's written within the context of sex and relationships, but actually it, it applies right across the piece. He talks of a universal longing. He uses the analogy of a magnet. It's as if God has made in each and every one of us a magnet that is looking to sort of you know, draw us, connect us to God. Here's the thing. That's in the whole of the Old Testament, the single most frequently cited sin and rebellion of the people. The time when they turned in on, on, and collapsed that, that longing for God was when they committed idolatry. It is the thing that time and time again, the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament prophets, time and time again, of all the sin that the people of God uh, commit, of all the sin that the nation of Israel, all the time they wander away from God, the root cause, according to Scripture, is idolatry. They break. Of all the, the words of life, the one they stray from most frequently is this second one. You will form no other idols, serve no other gods, Idolatry, essentially an attempt to take God's place as the primary pull or the primary draw or to satisfy the primary longing in our hearts. Idolatry is something or someone else who becomes associated in our lives with the source of contentment and security of, of influence or power. When we look to something or someone other than God to secure ourselves, to make ourselves feel good, right, happy, we're straying into idolatry. You shall have no other gods but me. Do not make an image of anything else. Serve me and me alone. 
Let's just look at the anatomy of idolatry. How does this happen to each and every one of us? How are we all prone to the possibility of straying? In order to satisfy the longing that God has put in each and every one of us, in order, if you like, to find an object for the magnet, the worship magnet in us, we will go about that in one or two ways. There are only really, when it all boils down, two ways in which we can do that. One is if God reveals himself to us. Or the other is if we construct a God for ourselves. In other words, that, that, that something other than ourselves will either be revealed to us or we'll go and try and find it. So the history of the human race, I mean, it, very briefly, a kind of, if you like, a spiritual evolution was that human beings are kind of, in, in, at base level, animists. They, they see gods and spirits everywhere. And most of the ancient Near Eastern people, uh, this is what, what marked Israel out as distinct, because most of the neighboring nations had many gods. They were polytheists. They worshipped and served all sorts of gods. And Israel was called to be unique among the nations, a light amongst the nations, because they had one god. And that god revealed himself to Abram. And through Abram, Isaac, Jacob, through Moses, he continually appeared and revealed himself. I am Yahweh. I am. It, 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 as uh, Lydia uh, helped us to see last week, it's kind of, it, it is the essence of relationship. Come amongst you, calling you, drawing on your magnet, bringing you into relationship with me. And Jesus, supremely, as God in human form, and John sort of gives us these, these clues, these signs in his gospel that we know them as the I am sayings. In all sorts of different contexts, be it a shepherd or a gate or bread or life itself, I am. In other words, through all these portals, come to me and worship me, the one true living God. Not many gods, one God. Revealed. God shows himself to us so that we might know. That's, that's how we know where we're meant to belong. Our hearts are meant to attach. Unless God chooses to reveal himself to us, we, we, we will always be in an element of doubt. You, if, uh, there may be some people here who are new. In fact, I've just met uh, people who are visiting here today. Well, you, they, they could, you could sit here. That applies to you. you could sit there and you look at me and you could, you could guess all sorts of things about me. You could guess my age, or you could guess my um, kind of uh, who's in my family. You could guess what kind of interests and hobbies. But at best, they'd be a guess. I mean, you could, you could go out and narrow it down. Um, you know, you, you know that I'm not 21. You, you know that probably my, both my parents are not um, black, Asian, mine ethnic, or uh, uh, minority ethnic. You, you, you can make some, some you, can, you can narrow it down, but you, you, don't know, you don't know much about me unless, I put out my hand, shake yours, and say, hi, I'm Tim. Unless I sort of invite revelation, I, I reveal something of myself to you, then you can know, because I've chosen to disclose. That's what God does. I am the Lord your God. I'll demonstrate my connection with you, because I'll bring you out of slavery. I'll bring you into the promised land. Do you notice the relational element of the Ten Commandments? Before any word of life, he simply says, this is who I am. This is what I've done for you. I've revealed myself to you by word, I, I am, and by action, rescue from slavery into the promised land. 
But the other way in which we will attempt to satisfy that longing, if, if we don't look for revelation, is we'll seek to construct it ourselves. As soon as Genesis 11, really early on in the, the biblical story of humanity, Genesis 11, let us make a, a, a tower for ourselves. And actually what they, the, 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 the verse, the scripture says, you can look it up later, is let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. Everything contained in a name, someone's status, someone's uh, position in community. Let us make a name for ourselves. In other words, let's put ourselves in the place of God. We'll establish ourselves. We'll secure ourselves. Idolatry. And God comes and brings confusion to the tower that they make. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Idolatry is misdirected worship. Misdirected worship. Now we can make idols of ourselves that satisfy or attempt to satisfy a universal longing. But the idols we make for ourselves dehumanize us. Just uh, don't worry to turn to it. I don't think we've got time this morning. But let me just read to you a little bit from the prophet Isaiah. Just see what, what he says uh, by way of sort of prophecy, prediction. All who make idols, this is Isaiah 44, if you're taking notes. All who make idols are nothing. The things they treasure are worthless. Those who speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. He describes it. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his hand. But he gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. All, all the while, in, in other words, eyes, eyes, he, he, all the while you make this idol that's meant to sustain you and satisfy you, you grow faint and hungry. What, what's your idol doing? No one stops to think, verse 19, chapter 44. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it, the, the wood used for an idol, half of it I use for fuel. I even bake bread over its coals. coals. I roasted meat and ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Or just over the page, uh, chapter 46. With whom will you compare me, the Lord says through Isaiah, or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we might be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god. They bow down and worship it. They lift it on their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. Though people cry out to it, it does not answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. It's just a created thing. It's a material object. It's a lump of gold or silver or fashioned wood. You, you think that these things are going to give you life? And of course, what we do in our sophisticated 21st century culture is we say, yes, silly people back then, ignoramuses. A, a, a statue out of wood or something out of gold or silver. <laughs> but, but if Isaiah were around today, I wonder whether he would say, you take some metal and you take some plastic and you take some rubber and if you take all the component parts, they aren't worth much, but you fashion them into a vehicle with four wheels and you place on the bonnet a little emblem of a charging stanion and you call it a Ferrari and you worship it, and suddenly the collective elements of this Ferrari assume far greater worth than any of the individual parts. 
and you drive around in your Ferrari and you hope that people see you driving your Ferrari because it makes you feel good. Look at him. He's got a Ferrari. It's just lumps of metal and steel and rubber, but it, as, we, as we invest in it, as we put our trust in it, as we worship it, it assumes a power on us. And here's the thing. When the magnet of our soul distances itself from the God who made us, it's not like it suddenly stops to become a magnet, stops becoming a magnet. It's not like it's not looking to be attracted to, to something else. It's not that we worship nothing when we forsake the God who made us. It's we're prone to worshiping anything. The magnet is just looking for connection anywhere. Any God will do. So I might take a smaller piece of metal and leather and strap it to my wrist and suddenly, or it might be the suit I wear or the handbag that I buy or the shoes. It might be the crowd that I'm part of and their collective voices. We call it peer pressure. And suddenly I find that the, the siren call of what others think matters to me more than what the God who made me thinks. And I start to worship the idol of peer pressure and comments and opinions on social media and the like. I need to know what others think of me because that's what gives me a sense of momentarily value, worth, significance. For the people in Israel, and I haven't got time to, to go into, into the detail, but uh, you'll see we're in page 232 that they worship two gods in their idolatry as they, a generation grew up neither knowing the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. I am the God who calls you. And so we see they forsook the Lord, verse 12. And they followed and worshipped various gods. Do you notice, going back from people worshipping one true God, they go to various gods. Oh, hedge all bets. I don't know, any God, anything will do. In the insecurity, in the panic of the soul. What? And in particular, the ones that are mentioned here in verse 13, they served, notice that, they served Baal and the Ashtoreths. If I had more time, I could tell you more about Baal, the, the, the god of fertility and, uh, and strength, often depicted as a man on top of an ox's body. Uh, and so the kind of fertility and also kind of brute strength and was often invoked around harvest time. You, you wanted your, your crops, it was the kind of fertility, in agrarian economy, I need my crops to, to grow. My livelihood, my, my, my whole family and my generations. And I fear the consequence of a bad harvest or poor crop. And, and, and because I've distanced myself from God and trusted in his provision, then, then Baal, you're the one, and I'll make silly idols, and I'll bow down and worship, I'll, I'll give my life to you, I'll serve you, if, if you will secure my life. And what's behind that? Then, as now, what's behind that? Fear. Fear. That God isn't good enough. That God will not provide. 
that God somehow isn't there listening to my plea or hearing my cry or aware of my circumstances, fear. And so I'll reach out to something or someone else and make them God. Because when we are fearful, we seek to control. I need the harvest to work. I need to have food on the table. I need, I need, I need. And so we, do you, do you, do you, do you recognize that? You know those times when you have been, we, we kind of water it down. We say, a little bit, I'm a little bit anxious, we say. No, we're actually operating out of fear. Let's call it what it is. We don't get a little bit anxious. But do you notice in your little bit of anxiety, do you notice what you do? When, when I'm feeling stressed, which is basically that too many elements of my life at one time feel like they're out of control. And if I'm not totally tuned into God, which I'm not always, I'm not always totally tuned into God, and I, 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 go to, I have little bits in the house that I control. I kind of tidy up little bits of the house. Not the whole house. If you've been to the vicarage, you'll see it's generally a bit of a tip. Um, and not bits of the, you know, my side of the bedroom is, hmm, let's probably not go there. But it's, it's elements of the kitchen. Who's that out there? Scrub it. Clean, clean, clean. Tidy, tidy, tidy. And it's a sign for me. Joe, we've been married long enough now. Joe kind of knows just to sort of take a step back, shoulders down, and kind of mm, laugh at me. <laughs> and she's skilled enough now to, to ask the kind of laser question. What's going on? She might as well say, what are you afraid of? No, I'm, I'm tidying the kitchen. Tidying the kitchen. It's a good thing. Tidying the kitchen. No, no. That's just a manifestation of what's really going on in your heart. And, and you're in danger of idolatry, she might as well say to me. And I need to say to myself, what, what about you? Baal, worship, fear, control. Ashtaroth was, uh, well, it was the god of fertility. Um, so Diana became, was a sort of descendant amongst the Greeks, the, the god of, um, of love. Uh, the God of, and around all of that, I mean, the, the, the kind of worship that took, around, uh, that took place around the Astaroths uh, was uh, licentious, to say the least. Orgies and, it's very orgiastic. In other words, if all is going well, and I'm kind of the, the sort of numb pain of a life distanced from God and a soul at dis-ease, I'll seek pleasure. I'll seek pleasure to numb the pain. And I'll, I'll enter into patterns of activity that quickly become addictive. And again, modern science is just catching up with what the Bible has always known through uh, just the way in which our neural pathways are, are, are connected, through the little hits that we get, those little pleasure hits in our brain. And, and, and kind of God knew that all along. The way in which we're made is we'll, we'll enter into patterns that, of behavior that give us little hits pleasures. And so don't you see that all around? That I'll, I'll jump into pleasurable activity. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to go there with, with sex in this talk, but you, 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 can make, you can do your own sermon notes on, on that. Just the way in which we, in general, we will be tempted to jump into sexual pleasure out of context to, to the maker's guidelines and words of life. We'll go beyond what he knows is good for us in the desperate attempt to, 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 to balm the pain of separation from him because we're idolatrous. The, the judges, uh, no, it wasn't, it was Isaiah, who, who said they've become blind, they, they've, they've lacked understanding. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, that the God of this world 
has blinded our minds. We're unable to see what is going on. We convince ourselves this is okay. But we're straying from this vital word of life of God. No other images. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes in his classic book, uh, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, Screwtape is a uh, senior devil, and he's writing to a junior devil, Wormwood, training him in how to draw Christians subtly away from their maker. In other words, he's encouraged them into idolatry, to, to, to wander away from the God who made them. He, he says this, remember, so the reference to the enemy is a reference to God, because this is the devil writing. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we've won many a soul through pleasure, but all the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. And all our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. To get the man's soul and give him nothing in return, that is what really gladdens our father's heart. To reduce us, to limit us, to squeeze out the life of our soul, gladdens the enemy's heart and saddens our father who looks down and remembers his covenant promise, I am, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of slavery. I brought you into the promised land. You shall have no other gods but me. What's the antidote? It is to recognize very quickly, briefly, well, it's to recognize the devil's schemes. He only ever gives us a snapshot. Has any of you, have you ever been disappointed by it? You go to the cinema to see a film, and you know you get there early enough to see all the trailers of the films coming up, and you know, oh, yeah, I want to know what's coming up. And uh, so you watch a trailer, and you see one, and you think, oh, that looks amazing. That looks amazing. You watch the 90-second trailer, and wow, got to see that one. When's it on? Yeah, go ahead, put it in the diary. Let's go. And you go. And, and the disappointment of realizing that that 90-second trailer was basically all that the film was worth. The, 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 the sort of 110 minutes were, were pants. They've just taken all the best bits, put it in the trailer, lured you into coming along, and you've had to sit through. Anyone? <laughs> We've all been there. That's, oh, what a waste of time. What a waste of money. I'd rather have to just watch the highlights. It's also a bit like watching a Fulham, Fulham game at the moment. It's, 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 <laughs> don't bother going to watch Fulham. Just watch Match of the Day and then have a box of Kleenexes by your side and... and <laughs> So that's what the devil does. No, forget the Fulham thing, that was an aside, sorry. But the film thing, that's, that's what he does. He, he, he lures you into thinking, this is the best life, this is the best life. The reality is no. If, if our magnet is not connected to God, if it's connecting to any other God, it will disappoint. Literally disappoint. We're appointed to be in relationship with God. And, and any other relationship will disappoint. 
so that we are, as described in Judges, we are at the mercy of those gods and we are in great distress. Is that not true as we look around our culture, look around our neighborhoods, look around our nation, look around our world? Powerless and in great distress. What's the answer? Romans 12, 1 and 2. And with this I finish. The children are going to come in shortly. That we don't conform. Let's, uh, I'm going to turn it on because I don't want to get it wrong. Uh, even though I try and learn this one because it is such a key verse. Therefore I urge you. And I, I finish with it. If you want to follow page 1075. Paul to the church in Rome. He's just been talking about uh, that doxology. It's like you know, practical praise. The riches of God, how good you are. Like we were singing earlier, God, you're so good. Do we believe that? Will we live that out in our everyday lives? Therefore, in light of the goodness of God, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God nowhere promises that he will give us control. He never offers us control of our lives. What he offers us is relationship where he's in control. And he invites us to trust him. And therefore, in view of his mercy, don't conform to the pattern of this world to its idolatries, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God, you are good, and I trust you in that. And where I feel out of control, I will trust that you are in control, and that will give me pleasure. That will bring me peace. Then I'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do not make a false image heaven, earth, under the earth. Worship the one true living God. I am the Lord your God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind to test and approve what his will is. This time tomorrow, at our desk, in the home, in the community, whatever it is that God is calling us to do, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. A word of life for us this morning. Amen.